you are here on a very special Sunday, as this Sunday we are starting a brand new series called Witness. And we're all celebrating the fact that this week is St. Patrick's Week, everybody. Come on, St. Patrick's Week. And we want to kind of weave today into our message, into our service, a little bit of the story of St. Patrick. And the reason why we do this is because we've kind of lost St. Patrick. You know, we kind of, he's kind of got lost in, in mythology and folklore, and we have this image of St. Patrick that isn't really accurate. St. Patrick was a Christ follower. He was a Christian who felt called by God to come to this land to make a difference for the gospel. That's why we call him St. Patrick. And so as a church that's endeavoring to do the same, again, if you're new, you're wondering, what's this all about? We want every single person in this city, every single person on this island to know the God that loves them, the God that created them, the God that calls them, the God that heals them, the God that redeems them, the God that saves them, and the God that gives their life ultimate purpose and meaning. And today, as we think about St. Patrick's story, all we're doing is celebrating a legacy that is inspiring us to continue in that legacy uh, today. And so, hey, if you've never been in a church for St. Patrick's Day, I don't know his story. Today, you're about to get the download on what we're doing. Okay, now, why are we doing a series called Witness? Well, really what the series is about is this idea that if you're a church-going person, if you're a person of faith, or as we like to say, a Christ follower, nothing is more awkward when, than when someone asks you about what you believe in, your faith, you're going where on Sunday, with who, and what are you doing, or maybe you've tried to invite someone to church, and even getting this the conversation up and going is a bit weird. Like, what were you doing last weekend, man? Oh, you know, I was out with the friends. Oh, yeah, what were you doing? I was uh, in church. You were where, sorry? I was uh, in church. Oh, was it like a communion or a confirmation? No, I just went. You just went to church? Like, just got up and put your clothes on and went? Yeah. Why? Like, are you okay? Is there something wrong? Yeah, I'm fine. Why would you go to church if you're fine? Like, why would you go voluntarily of your own volition if there's no family event and you are fine, right? And that's the moment we go, oh no, if it was a TikTok uh, uh, reel, it'd be like, oh my God, it would turn out, oh no, mom, because like, what do you say next, right? Because the whole thing has become awkward. What we're doing over the next five weeks is we're trying to ask and answer the question, how do we, how do we demystify, how do we you know, take the awkwardness out of just sharing our faith? Because if you're a Christ follower, if you're someone who's committed to this thing, then you, like me, believe this matters, like your faith isn't a part of your life, like choosing a pair of shoes. Faith is the main thing in your life. It informs and speaks to and shapes your priorities, your relationships, your career choices, your morality. It shapes every single part of you. And so if we can't talk about the most important part of our lives, that's kind of strange, right? I mean, we, we, we don't, we don't sort of talk about our wives, our husbands, our favorite football teams, our kids. We don't, we, don't, we don't find it awkward sharing about things that are meaningful to us, that matter to us, unless it comes to the subject matter of faith. And again, if you're here or you're watching online and you're not a Christ follower, this is why maybe one of the reasons why you're not a Christ follower, because you don't really know what it means to be one, because no one can give you a clear, un, un, unawkward, irreligious answer. Because so much of what we understand of the gospel has been wrapped up in religion and tradition and institutionalism. And many of us have come for a background, if we're honest, where we've rejected that. But in that, in that system, in that institutionalization, in that religiosity, there's a truth. The truth of a father in heaven who loves us 
and wants to break through into our lives. And so today, as we kick off this series, I want to lay a foundation, kind of give you the backdrop to why we're doing this, where it comes from, what it is. I want to define for you what the gospel actually is. I want to weave into that something of Patrick's story. And if it all works out together, by the end, when the oven goes ding, what we'll have is a moment where we can be inspired and encouraged to take responsibility for God's calling on our lives and a next step towards being a witness to him wherever that we find ourselves being. Okay, the key text for the series, the kind of foundational text, is found in the book of Acts. So this, story, this series is going to be based in the book of Acts. You've heard of the book of Acts. Maybe you've heard verses or read verses. Maybe you were raised in church, but you don't know what the book of Acts is. The book of Acts is actually part two of a gospel. So you've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis of Jesus' life. John's gospel is different. Matthew and John both follow Jesus. Mark and Luke never met Jesus. Mark followed Paul and later on he wrote down Peter's eyewitness account so Mark's gospel many scholars believe is actually Peter's account of Jesus' life and it was the first gospel even though it's second in order are you with me? Okay, Luke was a historian. He was a doctor. And he was hired by a rich benefactor in Rome to go and find out what the heck is happening. Like all of a sudden, there's these people called Christians. There's churches doing all sorts of strange things like, like today in the cinema. And he was like, I want to know more. So he hired an investigative journalist, if you will. He hired a, a person who was a doctor, a historian called Luke, and sent him back to Judea, back to Jerusalem to in- interview eyewitnesses and to figure out what the heck happened. So Luke wrote his gospel, the gospel of Luke is part one, and in part two, he wrote the book of Acts. Now why is it called Acts? Because the book is about the continuation of the church after Jesus ascended into heaven. Some scholars reckon Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles, or Acts of the Church, or Acts of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't really matter. The point is, it explains to us how the gospel went from Jesus and 11 disciples, because one didn't make it, to all over the world. And the way it made it the reason why we're sitting in a church service in Dublin Ireland so many years later is because ordinary people like you ordinary people like me to be basically understood that part of what God is doing in us and what God has done for us needs to be shared with other people and this idea isn't just something that you kind of blew in like tumbleweed into churches all over the world it actually was a mandate it was a mandate given to us as Christ followers from Jesus himself if you're not a Christ follower right now in the room watching online this does not apply to you you may go asleep right now sleep if you are a Christ follower, you say, my faith matters to me. I want to follow Jesus, or I'm open, or interested in following Jesus. This is what you're following him into. Because when you get to him, like these first disciples did, oh, we're here, Jesus. Great, now go. To get to Jesus, to follow Jesus means we follow him in his purpose, in his mission. And in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8, this is Jesus speaking to the first disciples. He's, he's telling them that basically he's getting ready to be ascended into heaven, but the church still has a purpose to bring freedom, to bring a message of hope, reconciliation, to bring a, message, a transforming message to societies all around the world. But it's a message that cannot make it on our power alone. Like it was up to us, there's no hope. If Lighthouse Church is held together, together by the glue of Jamie and Adrian and, and whoever else is around here, we're in trouble. There has to be a sense where this is held together, sustained by the power of God. And let me tell you something, if you're part of this church, you know that's true. 
Because you know the people that are involved, and they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And they don't have all the answers. They don't have have everything together. We're just being obedient to what God has called us to do. So in verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will. Watch this. You will receive power. So if you're following me, if you're a Christ follower, if you've dedicated your life to me, if you're saying, my faith is numero uno, if that's who you are, when you lift your hands to heaven and say, God, use me, God will answer that prayer and God will give you the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes the Holy Spirit's power, his strength, his ability, and the result, what happens as a result of the Holy Spirit coming in and on our lives is that we will be witnesses. Not any kind of witness, but we will be his witness. And we're not a witness to some kind of cultish thing. We're not a a witness to to a type of church or to an institutionalized religion. We're witnesses to a person. We're witnesses to Jesus. We're witnesses to the fact that he has come and he has done something in our lives. And this witnessing, Jesus said, will begin in Jerusalem. That's where they were. And it would spill out into Judea and Samaria and then into into the ends of the earth. So to give you some kind of geographic reference, put a map up there, guys. Jerusalem was the city, kind of like Dublin. Judea and Samaria was like county and province, okay? And then to the ends of the earth. So what Jesus says, is the gospel will start here. It starts in your house. It starts in your air code. It starts in your life. But it doesn't stay there. Because if the gospel is in you, and if, the, if, if, the, if you've received the person of the Holy Spirit, if you're following Jesus, it wants to come out, it wants to spill out into every area of your life. I mean, many people I know would say, the reason why I don't want to become a Christ follower is because the church is so full of rules. I don't like rules. I don't like being told what I shouldn't do or what I can't do. Well, guess what? I'm with you all the way. I'm, I'm a master rule breaker. Every record I had in school was not for academic purposes. Every record I had was for breaking the rules. I had most complaint, complaint slips, most detentions, most suspensions. I'm the one that threw a sheep at a biology teacher, a table at a maths teacher, and punched my English teacher. All of my academic records are for the wrong reason. I have a fundamental problem with people telling me what I should do. Is anyone with me? Maybe it's a Jamie thing. Maybe it's an Irish thing. Maybe it's an Irish thing. I don't know, but I get it. But there, is, there lies the misconception that following Jesus means, well, to go to church, I've got to clean up my act. Well, to go to church means I've got to speak this, this certain way and do these things, and I've got to be like those people to be accepted in church. That's not the good news that Jesus gave us. Jesus says, come as you are the way you are, who you are, broken and all, come to me and I will give you rest. The reason why we have been changed and the reason why we're changing isn't because we follow rules. It's because the Holy Spirit in us gives us power to be wise. We just spent six weeks at the beginning of this year learning practically about the power of wisdom. That when we have wisdom, wisdom helps us to make better decisions, which means we live with Fewer regrets. Okay, that's, that's one form of power, wisdom. Another form is that when God is in you, he changes you from the inside out. From the inside out. When I put my faith in Jesus many, many years ago as a young, rebellious, angry adolescent man, I didn't have to go to some class to learn the rules. 
No one told me you can't and you shouldn't. Uh, all of a sudden, something in me began to change. My priorities changed. My lifestyle choices changed. My language changed. My outlook changed. Everything about me, except my appearance, unfortunately, changed. <laughs> that one's going to come one day. But it wasn't me changing myself. It was God at work within me. When we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to, all that good stuff wants to get out into the world. It starts with Jerusalem, our city, our immediate context. But then it goes into our, into our county and then our province and then to the ends of the earth. And you and I, like it or leave it, if you don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in the Bible, believe in God, we are sitting in this room because that conversation 2,000 years ago has happened. Like you are a living, breathing evidence of this mandate. Like, how crazy is that? Now, you can, you can look back skeptically as I did and say, well, it's all man-made. It's all a plan, a strategy, or some kind of Amway pyramid scheme going on here. Like, it's all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I accept that position, if that's what you, you are today. But those of us who are here and have experienced the power, we know the truth. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't join this. I wasn't raised in this. I didn't even want to know God. I didn't even believe in God. Until one day I prayed a prayer to a God I didn't even believe in. And very inconveniently, he answered. Now what do you do with that? What do you do when you pray to a God you don't believe in and all of a sudden he invades your house? Changed my life. Which is why I'm here sharing this with you. The point is, is that we're not in Jerusalem and Samaria. This actually happened 2,000 years ago. But we live in Dublin, right? This is our town, our city, our county, our province, our land, our continent. And our continent needs the gospel. Because like it or leave it, when people are following Jesus, not only does following Jesus make your life better, but it makes you better at life. Like Christians aren't better than others and Christians aren't perfect. But statistically speaking, if you're loving and serving and worshiping Jesus, this, this servant, this merciful, gracious, kind leader, well, then you're going to become like him, right? Let me just say this. Merciful, kind, gracious people don't invade their neighbor's country. They don't shoot their people. They don't blow up their children. They're not corrupt. They don't take bribes. They don't turn a blind eye to injustice and human trafficking. People who follow Jesus are like Jesus. And they speak up. And even though they're not perfect and don't get it right every single time, there may be moments, blips on the path where they fall, but the overarching narrative of their life is they're like Jesus. Our world would be better if all of us were more like Jesus. Now, this is, what, this is where we start. Jesus called us in our following him to be witnesses. We are called to be witnesses. Now, what's a witness? Break it down, English dictionary. The definition of a witness. A witness is someone who sees an event, keyword. An individual who, being present, personally sees or perceives. So this is interesting. Being a witness isn't just you see, you can perceive something. The perceptual element and realm. A witness is a beholder, a spectator, literally an eyewitness. We all know what it means. We've seen it in movies, witnesses, in the court of law, and all this kind of stuff. Basically, a witness is someone who has seen, heard, felt, or experienced something. God hasn't called us to be amazing theologians. God hasn't called us to be world changers. God hasn't called us to be national leaders of nations or anything. God has simply called every single one of us to be a person who will be willing to speak up about what we've seen, what we've felt, 
what we've heard and what we've experienced in Jesus. You can't make that up. You can't fake that. There is no convince. You can't convince someone to feel something they haven't felt. You can't convince someone to believe in someone they haven't experienced. It's, it's so beautiful. This isn't indoctrination. It's invitation. The invitation is simple. In the room, online, if you're not a Christian, pray to God and say, God, prove me wrong. And if God doesn't, well done. It cost you 30 seconds of your life. You happy? But if God is real, and he answers your prayer, and he shows up in your life, what then? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh. You're in trouble like I was. Because now, all of a sudden, your whole world is going to be turned upside down in the face of the reality of a God you didn't even believe in. Now, I get it. There's pushbacks, right? Okay. So, like, we all have pushbacks. You think, man, really, Jamie, witness, talk about God. Are you kidding me? Maybe you're one of those people who was raised with this idea, your faith is private, your faith is personal. And there's a sense in where, yes, the root of your faith, your faith is a living thing like a plant. The root, the the best part of your faith is private. It's, It's who you are when no one's looking, right? It's when you're alone at night in your room. That's where your faith really is or isn't. But like any plant, there's a root and there's a shoot, and there's fruit, yeah? And so there's a sense in where the core of it may be invisible, but a huge part of it needs to be visible to other people. And so when we think about man, there's a couple of pushbacks that I get all the time. And again, I share these. The first one is this. I can't be a witness, Jamie. I, I, my, my story isn't exciting. I didn't throw a sheep's heart at anybody. Well, go give it a go. It's a bit of crack, actually. <laughs> Right? That's not my story. I don't have this exciting, life-changing story. I was just raised in church. I'm just a good person. I just kind of somehow became a Christian like by osmosis over time. So you say, I, I can't be a witness. I don't have a great story. Number two, I don't have the moral authority. If you knew my life, if you know the mess my life is, if you know the, the disaster that I am, if you know how contradictory my faith and my life are right now, you would say to me, you can never be a witness. Oh, wait for that message. That's going to be a good one. Number three, I don't know what to say when I witness. Like I get there and I, I'm eager and I want to help people. I see their pain. I see they're going through. And I want to say something. I just don't know what to say. Or here's a classic one. I'm afraid that people will reject me if I witness. I'm afraid that people will reject me. I mean, so many of us, so many rejections. We don't need to add another run to the list by stepping out and talking about Jesus. Are you kidding me? And of course, the fifth and final one is, it's not my responsibility. If God wants to save some people, have at God. If God wants to send a pastor, send a priest, like send a missionary, like it's just not my job. And so here's what we're going to do, because all of these pushbacks are legitimate. They're all real and they're all legit. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next five weeks answering each one of these pushbacks. We're going to answer the question, well, what if you don't have a great story? How do you become witness? We're going to answer the question, what if your life's a mess? Like what moral ground do you have to talk to people about Jesus? That's going to be a good one. We're going to talk about what do you say when it comes to this? Practically, how do you even start it? And then in the last week, the week before Easter, we're going to talk about rejection and what it means and, and how it affects us. And then today in part one, we're going to do the idea of responsibility. Responsibility. Because here's the truth. When it comes to witnessing, it's true. It's God's power. I'll say it again and I'll say it clear. It's God's power that changes people. It's not self-help. It's God's power. Some of you, come on. Some of you, 
have been raised in Christian homes, and you have this desire to serve God, this hunger to do the right thing, but you, you just can't do it. Because you've got addictions, and bad habits, and bad friends, and you find yourself always willing, but always failing, and you're thinking, it's me. It's all, I have to try harder, work more, prove myself more. You're wrong. You need God's power. Because God's power is beyond us. It's out of us. It comes on us and in us. It is available to us and it changes us. I mean, how many of you have been married for more than a week? Do you want to have a happy, fruitful, romantic marriage? Year 10, year 20, year 30? Come on, I'm on year 17, thank you. My wife's sick today, she's not here. That's a good son that makes that mistake. As I tell people, I've been married long enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, how long have I been married? Long enough to know what it's all about. So, like, so, I mean, if you want, we need power. We need help. Because what, 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 why do marriages break up? Lots of reasons. One of the reasons why is because the two people who once loved each other deeply, it's not, it's not that they've fallen out of love. You don't fall out of love. It's they've, they've lost the ability to show that love. Yeah. Are you with me? They've lost the ability to speak kindly to each other, to go the extra mile, to rather than being territorial about who has rights to the TV remote, or dare I say, have two separate televisions, which then leads to two separate bedrooms, which leads to two separate houses, right? Good people, their marriages fall apart because they try to do it alone. And we need each other, and we need God's power. And when it comes to people being transformed by the gospel message, I'm going to say it clearly, say it again, it is God's power okay god's power changes people however people can never experience god's power unless we tell them so it's god's power but it's our responsibility to share that option like did you know there's an option here what are you serious yeah there's an option what's the option put your trust in god oh don't be ridiculous oh it's such an archaic 20th century idea get it off me like what? Put my faith in God? Are you my granny? Seriously? What are you on about? And it's like, well, yeah, okay, you may mock me. We're going to talk about rejection week five. But if you were willing to give God a chance, his power could change your life forever. It's not my job to change your life. I'm not God. I can't convince you. I shouldn't coerce you. I shouldn't manipulate you. I shouldn't put you in a guilt trip. All I can do is give you the... I can just share with you what God has done in me. That's my responsibility. And it's God's power. Put simply, it's God's work, but it's our witness. It's God's work, but it's our... The foundation for this series is God's work, but it's our witness. We are called to be his witnesses. Again, if you're not a Christ follower, not a person of faith, this does not apply to you. Hope you're still sleeping and enjoy your nap, okay? But for those who are Christians and Christ followers, this applies to us. This is not an optional box you tick when you check into Christianity. Like, do you want breakfast in bed? Uh, nah. This is like part of the deal. To follow Jesus means we're following him into his purpose and mission. And his purpose is that people everywhere would hear the good news that God's power can change their lives. We call this, in a second, witnesses of the world everywhere, we call this the gospel. Yeah. I mean, you've heard this word, the gospel according to St. John, the gospel according to St. Luke. What is a gospel? The word gospel in English comes from a Greek word, euangelion. Say it with me, one, two, three, euangelion. And what it means is good news. 
It just means good news. So when someone stands up, forms the gospel of St. Luke, all they're saying is the good news, and the word saint literally means holy. So the gospel, the good news from holy Luke, of what he experienced with Jesus. That's all it means. We're going to demystify all this, weird, all this weird language, okay? So the good news, why is it good news? Well, I just told you, if you have a failing marriage, if you're battling mental health, if you can't break free from your addictions, if you can't find purpose and meaning in life, if you're broken and tired and cannot fix yourself, there is power from heaven that can change your life. Now, if you don't want it, that's cool. Fair play, all the best to you, okay? If you don't believe in it, well, give it a go and see what happens. The point is, when it comes in and on you, it's good news. I need this. I didn't know I wanted this, but I want this. And, I, and I, people like me, I've come to rely on it to the core and fiber of my being. To the point where, man, in the most practical of ways, recently myself and Adrian were flying to another country and we had a connection flight to get and we landed. And when we landed, our plane was, the plane that was leaving where we landed to go to the next place was delayed, which meant the other flight was going to be delayed even more. So it meant that we were going to get to our destination like a day and a half later. Like crazy. So I'm on the phone, like, look, we fly out this place, this city, go here, do that, you know, camels, donkeys, pigeons, like, what can we do? And of course, there's nothing we can do. I just said to the woman, you know what? Don't worry about it. And she's like, are you sure? I said, don't worry about it. I hung up the phone and said, Adrian, we're going to pray. We're going to pray that the next plane is delayed by exactly the time that we need to miss our, not miss our connection flight. And we had a chuckle about it. And we said, oh, what about all the other people? Well, the Lord will bless them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we're going to pray this plane is delayed, right? And we prayed, and we landed, and as we walk out of the door, I get a notification on my phone and say that the f- next flight was delayed exactly, exactly the amount of time that we... Now, listen, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, okay, listen carefully, just time out. I'm not saying we have a theology of praying for planes to be late. I'm not packaging this and selling it to you with my prayer hanky. Okay, I'm not, saying, I'm not even saying that maybe God orchestrated that. I'm saying I had faith in God's power to make a plane be late for my benefit. Now, whether God intervened or not, I don't know. I don't know. But I have come to learn after many, many years of following Jesus that my best bet is always to trust in His power. My best bet is always to trust in His power. It is good news when we understand what is. And that's the challenge. The challenge is that we need to understand what the gospel is. Now, we know it's good news, but what is the good news? And again, if you're like me, you've studied theology or you've been around church for a while, there's all these conversations, you know, about what the gospel is and what it isn't and how it should be preached. And some of you maybe here are watching online that are not Christ followers. And one of the reasons why you're not Christ followers is because you've seen people, quote, unquote, preach the gospel, standing on boxes, telling everyone they're going to hell. Wow, great news. Like, let's go. Who's with me? You know what I'm saying? Who wants to go and spend the rest of their lives in hell? Most people think, I'm already in hell. How much worse could it get? Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe I'll find my people there. It's like, how is that good news? That there's this mean God in heaven who created you, but hamstrung you and hates you and is disgusted by you and wants nothing more than to have the pleasure of destroying you. Who wants to follow a God like that? Not me. I certainly wouldn't call that good news. And the problem is these people call themselves Christians and they say they're preaching the gospel. So then we go, well, man, that's a conflict. What do we do? Like, who can tell us what the gospel is? Well, what if I told you the gospel tells us? Hang on a second. What if I told you the apostle Paul, 
who's one of the greatest figures in church history. He wrote over two-thirds of the entire New Testament. What if I told you that Paul actually told us in one of his letters what the gospel was? And do you want to, do you want to get, get a surprise? Be surprised? He doesn't mention hell once. Oh my goodness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 8, the Apostle Paul, writing to a local church like ours in a city called Corinth, which still exists in Greece today, he says now, and this is him concluding, coming to the end of the letter, he says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I, come on, the gospel I preach to you. So before there was a Bible, there was the original preaching of the early church. Okay, this was the Bible. It was the proclaimed word. And you go, well, that's... Some of you are thinking, well, that's why I don't believe it, because it's all made up. No, no. The people who were there, as we're going to see, were still alive at the time. So the Apostle Paul was preaching something that wasn't true. The people who were alive would hear it and hold him accountable, okay? He was preaching a consistent message. He was pre- preaching their good news. I want to remind you of their good news, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. You see, these people, their backs were against the wall. Why? Because they lived in a polytheistic culture, a culture that didn't recognize one God, a culture that was free a roman culture sexually free uh, you know ethno, very few morals and so the church is coming along and saying you know what hey we're against this injustice and we want to stand up for this we want to serve this and they're like no no you can't do those things so the church is like making a stand and paul says the thing that you're making a stand on let me remind you of what it is by this gospel you are saved. So he isn't talking about just a general part of the gospel or a, or a sequence. He's saying this is the thing that sets you free. This is the thing on which your faith is grounded. This is the thing that if this thing isn't real, your faith isn't real. This is everything. If you hold firmly to the word I preach, otherwise you will have believed in vain. What is it Paul tell us? Verse 3. He says, For what I received, for what I received, I passed on to you. As of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He doesn't mean the New Testament. He means according to Old Testament prophecy. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared, that's the key word, he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is the Greek name for the Apostle Peter, okay? Simon, remember Simon was his Aramaic name, Cephas is his Greek name, Peter, okay? He appears to Cephas, and then to the twelve disciples, apostles, sorry. Then he appeared to more than 500, 500, not five, 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. It wasn't some made-up guy running around in a costume playing Halloween jokes. 500 people witnessed a guy who three days ago was dead and is now alive. Like you were dead. We saw you die, fully dead, stabbed, blood, dead. We saw you buried in a tomb, big stone, arms secured. We saw this and now you're alive. Like what the heck is going on? People who die stay dead if they're normal people. But Jesus is a normal person right? Most of whom are still living, even though some have fallen asleep. Now what's Paul saying? The the language fallen asleep, the New Testament church didn't describe Christians' death as death. In the the New Testament, in the book of Acts, you'll see it mentioned many times, where when a Christ follower died, some put their faith in Jesus, it's described as them falling asleep. How cool is that? Do you know why it's falling asleep? Because every time you fall asleep, you wake back up again. 
And for every single person that falls asleep with their faith in Jesus, there is the promise of one day waking back up again. That's called the resurrection. But again, if you're, if you're like me and you're like wired like a skeptic and like, okay, well, hang on. Like, what's he saying? He's saying that if you don't believe this, if this seems far-fetched to you, if you want to confirm if this is the actual gospel, well, these people are still alive. You can go to their front door. Who's writing? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. I mean, I'll give you names. I'll give you addresses. And by the way, you're thinking, well, of course they're going to, of course they'd say this song. They all believed in this. Hang on a second. You know what the price for believing in Jesus was in Jerusalem in the first century? Your life. It cost you your life to follow Jesus. See our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine? They're not fighting against the Russia. They're fighting for their existence. They're fighting for the age-old ideal that we deserve to be free. And democracy is worth fighting for and worth dying for. And it's a battle that others can't fight for. You have to fight it yourself. So we see these images of fathers turning away their wives and children to go back and fight knowing it's probably in the larger scale of things a lost cause. But the outcome doesn't mean we don't change how we feel. We fight for what matters. We fight for what's real. We fight for what's relevant. They're laying down their lives because they believe in the cause of their independence and freedom. And we stand with the people of Ukraine today in Jesus' name. But the first century church weren't fighting for a nation. They are fighting for a gospel. And they were stoned. And they were cut in half. And their flesh was ripped off. And they were crucified. They were stripped naked and they were humiliated. Everything they owned was taken from them. They were fed to lions and bears, women, children, men. All for what, you say? I've experienced someone. I've seen someone. And I can't unsee what I've seen. And he has changed my life. And his grace and his mercy and his love is so powerful in my life. It's worth dying for. These people didn't make up some story. They didn't benefit financially. They saw Jesus. And they were willing to pay with their blood. And the Apostle Paul is saying, if this seems far-fetched to you, readers in Corinth and Greece, go to Jerusalem. Talk to the people. See for yourself. The gospel is simply the idea that Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried and raised and that he appeared first to the 12, then to the 500. And Paul says at the end of the verse, and then he says, and last of all to me, one abnormally born. What that means very quickly, in case you read it, was that he wasn't there. He met Jesus much later, book of Acts chapter 9. He met Jesus later, so he's kind of abnormally born. So it wasn't with the original crew. But the gospel by definition is simply this. What is the good news? Christ died for our sins. Maybe you're like me and you go, well, what, what does that mean? How is that relevant? Because you know that you have a ledger of junk, things you've said, things you've done, things that were done to you. And yeah, on a day-to-day basis, you know, you go get your McDonald's, you drink your Frappuccino, you go to work, you don't really think about it, right? But then there's those moments of clarity where you're sitting by yourself and you're thinking about your life and the weight of who you are and what you've done comes on you. And the judgment, and the condemnation, and it isn't God condemning us, it's us condemning ourselves. And the question is, what do you do with your sin? Where do you put that? Like, is there a drawer at home that you can just, like, put it away and forget about it? Like, what, where do you put that? At some point, all the skeletons that are in our closet will come out. Yeah. And we know it. 
We know this human beings that happens all the time. What can we do with our sin? Well, Christ died on a cross on a hill called Calvary 2,000 years ago to pay the price for that sin. So not only is that sin taken off of us, but so is the shame and the guilt and the condemnation. So now as a Christ follower, as I think about my sin, I don't feel guilt and shame because I know that God has done something on my behalf. I feel gratitude that someone loved me enough to pay a bill that wasn't theirs, but was mine. But not only that, that Christ was buried. See, sometimes we focus the gospel on just the first part. That's only the first part. Because if he died and stayed dead, who cares? Don't be irreverent. But honestly, there's loads of people over the span of history who've died for a religious cause. Like, get in line, Jesus. What makes Jesus... Like what, what, on what basis would we say that Christianity or the gospel is different? Well, the, the reason why we different is because not only did he die... But he was buried. Well, everyone was buried, yes, but only for three days. And again, it's significant. Why? Because people watched him die. They watched him be buried. There was a guard at the tomb, a, a group of people guarding the tomb. And after three days, he rose from the dead. Yeah. Crickets. Yeah. Silence, right? It's like, what? Really? That's the gospel? Yes, the gospel is that Jesus Christ, a man, died and rose from the dead. And if that isn't true, Christianity isn't true. No, you don't get it. You're not with me. I'll say it again. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything you believe is nonsense. It's worthless. It's pointless. It has no value. Why are we even doing this? We're just like the people that we, we, the place that we left. We're just a religious one of people doing traditional liturgical things. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, that changes everything. Because not only does it give us hope that one day we can rise too, but it means he lives. And it says in one place, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. It's called the Holy Spirit. And that power is available to all of us. Not just for ourselves to grow and, and you know, develop as Christ followers, but also available to us when it comes to us sharing about our faith with other people. And the idea is this. The reason why, we're, the reason why Christians still exist isn't because we were born into it or baptized into it or told to get into it. It's because Christ appeared to me. Listen, I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised a Roman Catholic. And I hated church. And I hated God. I hated everyone who liked church and God. I was like, if there's a spectrum, I was off the spectrum. Like down the cliff face. Like I was in hell. My life was hell. And I actually enjoyed it to a sense. Because I was so hell-bent on my own self-destruction. And I never thought that anyone, like a God in heaven, could love me enough to reach down. In my chaos, rest and pick me up and say, you, you are loved and you are valued and you are forgiven. And if you want it, I have a plan and purpose for your life because you are called. The reason why I speak openly and confidently about Jesus is because if you could see what he did in my life, you know, because many of you have done it in your life. I can't help but tell the world what God has done in my life. God's power has transformed me forever. God's power is still transforming. According to my wife, he isn't transforming me fast enough. Right? 
but I'm, I'm a work in progress. And that power is available to us, and that power is available to us when we witness. Now, as I kind of bring this thing in for a close, what is all I got, all I got to do with St. Patrick? We're celebrating St. Patrick. Well, what I got to do with St. Patrick is St. Patrick is Ireland's greatest witness. Like, as an individual, no one stands out more in history than St. Patrick. And when we think about St. Patrick's Day, La Fela Fodrig, you know, La Fela Fodrig, St. Patrick's Day, isn't just a day for Guinness and parades and green and shamrocks. In fact, did you know that Patrick's painted color wasn't even green? It was blue. Patrick's patron color was blue, not green. There's a freebie for you. But on Law of Fail of St. Patrick is actually a church holiday, and it's a day for spiritual renewal. What a cool idea. And maybe you're here watching online, and you're in a place where you need a spiritual renewal. As we start this series, maybe you're not a Christ follower, and you're pushing back, going, I don't know. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to have your faith renewed, as we think about Patrick's example. So what is Scale Nave Fodrick? What is St. Patrick's story? Because we think we know it. Snakes and shamrocks and lucky charms and St. Bridget's Cross and funny hats and leprechauns and pot gold. That's, they're all part of the same story, right? No, wrong, okay? St. Patrick actually existed, okay? And here's what we know about him. He was abducted at the age of 16. He was trafficked into Ireland. He was sold into slavery. He was a child laborer, and he was a victim of abuse. Ever heard that story St. Patrick told anybody? As we look with our own eyes, what's happening in the nation of Ukraine, we're right now in Poland and Romania and other nations, they're having to increase the penalty for human trafficking. Because in the chaos of war, some evil people are seeing the opportunity to take advantage of other human beings in their most desperate situation, and they're being kidnapped and trafficked. You don't hear that in the news, do you? No one's talking about it, but we need to pray for justice. We need to pray these people are found and brought to justice. But Patrick had a crazy background. What, what is Patrick's background, you ask? Well, what we know from his own confession. So Patrick has, a, has like a biography. Many reckon that he wrote himself called a confessio, his confession. And in this living document we have here in Dublin, we find some of the fragments of his story. We're told he was the son of a man named Calpurnius, who served in his church, a deacon's like a dream team volunteer, someone who's involved. So his dad was heavily involved in church. More than that, his granddad, Potitus, almost like a potato, but not quite. But, say that with me, potitus. It's just potitus, you know. Anyway, so anyway, this guy, Potitus, uh, was a minister. So he actually comes from a home where people, his father, his mother perhaps, his grandfather, maybe his grandmother, had faith. They, they, they had a real meaningful relationship with Jesus. But we're told in his own confession that Patrick was not an active believer. Did you know that? Patrick himself did not believe. And not only that, but Patrick isn't Irish. What? Ireland's patron saint, the most famous Irish man in history, isn't even Irish. He's from Wales. Right? And to make matters worse, well, who would do such an evil thing like abducting him and trafficking him and selling him? It was the Irish. It was Irish raiders, Irish pirates that went to Wales and abducted, trafficked and sold poor young Patrick into slavery. 
and then have the audacity to claim him as our patron saint. He should be red and he should wear a dragon because he's from Wales. But it's an interesting point here, right? Because many of you watching right now and in the room, you weren't born here. You were born somewhere else. But every year on St. Patrick's Day, we said the same thing. To us, you are Irish. Come on. I'll tell you why. Because being Irish is not a birthright. Being Irish is not having a passport. Being Irish is a spirit. It's crack agus clan. It's the spirit of the wild, fun-loving, adventurous Irish thing and it's family and community and passion and place. And when you're born in Nigeria, the Philippines or Brazil, you are Irish. Doesn't mean you stop being those other things. You keep being those things because you know what? You made our food better. You make our sport better. Come on. You make our TV. We see in TV better. You make this country better. Ireland is stronger and better because it's more diverse and more international. And just like pa- Patrick, our greatest patron said, who wasn't even Irish, you can belong to us too because Irish is here. People say, where is Ireland? Ireland's not a border. This is not Ireland. Ireland's in here. Ireland's in this place right here. Any one of us can own that today if we want to. But when it comes to the physical landmass, Patrick was trafficked from Wales. He was brought to the shores of County Down and he was sold to an evil landlord. And Patrick spent many, many days on a hill in County Antrim shepherding sheep. He was poorly fed. He was poorly clothed. Can you imagine what it's like in the, in the, in the wilds of December and January, way up in County Antrim on a hill, no clothing, no food, I mean, no cover? I mean, we know, we know exactly what hill he was on. It's a hill called Slemish. When you go there, there's no trees. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to cover. Nowhere to shelter yourself. For many, many years, Patrick spent time on this hill. And you think, man, all that, all that bad stuff that happened to him would make him hate God and reject his faith. But the exact opposite happened. We're told in his confession, Patrick's conversion, that it was on this lonely hill, isolated, deprived, exposed, that Patrick's faith was birthed and blossomed on a lonely hill in Slemish County, Antrim. We're told that Patrick prayed up to 100 times a day. And he could mash that at night too. Which right now, if you're a parent, you're asking the same question I was asking. How do I get my 16-year-old to pray 100 times a day? What I got to do is take all their clothes off them, put them on a hill tending sheep for six years. What are you laughing at? I'm serious. And they will learn to pray 100 times a day. Because Patrick was there for six years. We went through two years of COVID, man. We're like, oh my gosh. Six years being a slave. Six years living in injustice. Six years a victim of abuse. Six years of injustice. Six years not seeing his father, his mother, his family. Six years alone amongst a foreign people. Rejected and dejected with sheep as his only friend. Patrick suffered. For six years. But here's the cool thing. Patrick wasn't alone. Because God's power was at work in him. Because even though Patrick suffered, God strengthened him. And because of Patrick's suffering and God's strengthening, Patrick has a story that we now celebrate because many were saved as a result of Patrick's message. But understand, Patrick isn't this picture-perfect saint with a stick and a crook and a hat and a cool thing. Patrick's life was a mess. 
Just like yours, just like mine. But Patrick's mess became his message. He was an ordinary person, just like me, just like you, called to an extraordinary purpose in Christ. And as he began to take steps towards God, to trust in God, to say, okay, God, I'll be your witness. I will take responsibility for my calling. It wasn't without a price. One famous story Patrick tells us in his confessions that when he left Ireland, so God spoke to him in a dream, he fled down south, jumped on a ship, and either landed in, in Britain or Fr- France, no one really knows, but for a period of time, the crew were lost, okay, and became very hungry. And then this hungry crew, you know, veteran sailors, turned on Patrick and started attacking him for his faith. They said, what about you, Christian? You tell us that your God is great and all-powerful. Why can't you pray for us since we're in a bad state with hunger? The starving sailors asked him. Again, we see this today. If God was real, why is there war? If God is real, why are children being bombed out of, out of parent blocks in Ukraine? Like if God were real, why is there suffering? Well, let me answer this. Again, we, did a, we do a whole series on this uh, called Apologetic. You can go on our line and look at it. But, but to give you a simple answer, God didn't bomb children in Ukraine. People did. God doesn't kill and rape, and rob, and lie. People do. We don't have a God problem. We have a people problem. And the problem is if more of those people had God, they wouldn't do those things. Because Jesus not only makes our lives better, Jesus makes us better at life. And so they're asking the same question. And again, this is Patrick's moment, the first time he ever had to be a witness for his faith. He steps out and he says, they says, turn in faith with all your hearts to the Lord my God. Because nothing is impossible for him. Wow. This dude has all the right in the world to hate life, hate God, hate everybody. And yet rather than becoming a victim, rather than adopting the narrative of victim, he takes responsibility. And he says, I've got a calling. And my calling is to help people find Jesus. And so he calls them to turn their eyes to God. And then he led them in a prayer. And as soon as the prayer was answered, a whole bunch of pigs showed up. And they all had bacon and toast. Well, that's my interpretation of it. <laughs> Patrick had his first converts. Bottom line is this. Patrick had, God had a plan for Patrick. God has a plan for your life. And the trials and difficulties that Patrick went through didn't change that plan and couldn't stop that plan. And the trials and difficulties that you've gone through aren't just like, you know, unnecessary extras to be forgotten about. In your mess, there is a message. Because you can speak to people who've been through it. You, you've been through it in a way that no one else can. And even though you may feel like, man, well, I've screwed up and I've failed and I've, I've fallen in so many ways. Listen to me. Being a witness is not about being part. You don't need to be Jesus. You point people to him. We don't need to be Jesus. We point people to him. And despite all Patrick's pain, Patrick didn't reject his calling. Patrick took responsibility for it. 